Take your Bible and turn with me to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. We're continuing our march through the book of Philippians. We're actually um, going ahead a little bit, and I'll explain as we go through this. We're going to go back and pick up a couple of things that happened in chapter 2. But uh, Philippians chapter 3 is where we're going to center, and not maybe just for today. Um, we, uh, as I was preparing, I'd mapped out and prayed through where we were going through Philippians and how we would finish up with that. And uh, as I got into this message and preparing it this week, and it's kind of been a crazy week around the church. We've had lots of moving parts with um, different things happening. There was, you know, schools are out on Thursday, but we had a um, couple of funerals here on the weekend. Um, I had a son who turned 18 yesterday, and we were planning through all of that. And so it's been kind of a crazy weekend. As I was preparing and looking and finalizing, I just felt like the Lord is calling us to camp out on this particular passage for a couple of weeks. Now, part of that is that I kind of mapped out what I would do with this passage, prayed through it, and I had four points and realized that it would be about a two-hour sermon. And so, and so I've cut it to one point today, all right? Because the first point's a long one, but I feel like it's something we need to focus on and think about and work through, all right? And, uh, and I'll tell you kind of the impetus of that was uh, celebrating Eli's birthday or so. So Eli turned 18 yesterday. And uh, one of the things that I've discovered as a parent is that not only are your kids milestones, milestones for them, they're also milestones for you. Amen. It makes you think through things. And, you know, I got contemplative yesterday and I had a couple of hours in between other things going on and got contemplative about his life and about God's blessing on Eli for us. We were told, many of you know this story, but we were told by doctors that we had 0% chance of, of having children on our own. And God laughed at that. Um, and Eli was our first. And, and just thinking 18 years, kind of, have I been the dad that God's called me to be? Have I been the dad that has prepared him for life and, um, and, and what's coming and thought about his life and all that God has prepared for that and excited about that and praying through that? And you just get to this point when those kind of moments, those milestone moments, when you say, man, I want to make sure, you know, I turned 45 a couple of weeks ago. I don't know how long God has for me on this planet. None of us know if it's another week or another year or another 20 years or 40 years. But I just had one of those moments yesterday when, again, I was thinking about that I want my life to count. I want my life to count for the Lord. I want my life to count for my family. I want my life to count for this church. I want my life to count for our community. I want my life to count for the world. And I want my life to count for the kingdom of God. Now, I know that part of that was because I was walking through this particular passage. In Philippians chapter 3, the first 11 verses always make me think about that. And they make me think particularly about a phrase which is, don't waste your life. And my desire is to live a life that is not wasted. And there's a particular story that I've shared with you before in part. I don't know that I've ever shared the whole thing or read the whole thing. But today I felt compelled to do that. Because I'm afraid that there are a lot of us that if we're not careful, will waste our lives doing good things that we think matter. But in the end, if they're not directed in the right place, they don't. And on March, excuse me, on the morning of May 20th, 2000, 
On a damp and dreary day in a field in Memphis, Tennessee, 40,000 college students gathered. The oldest person that would speak that week came to the pulpit. He was 54 years old. It was a church conference called Passion one day. And he stood up and delivered what has been described as one of the most significant message of an entire generation. And this is how he started that message. He said, you don't have to know a lot of things for your life to make a lasting difference in the world. But you do have to know the few great things that matter and then be willing to live for them and die for them. The people that make a real difference in the world are not the people who are mastered many things, but the people who have been mastered by a few great things. If you want your life to count, if you want a ripple effect of the pebbles you drop to become waves that reach the ends of the earth and roll on for centuries and into eternity, you don't have to have a high IQ or high EQ. You don't have to have good looks. You don't have to have riches. You don't have to come from a fine family or a fine school. You just have to know of a few great, majestic, unchanging, obvious, simple, glorious things and be set on fire by them. But I know that not everybody in this crowd wants their life to make a difference. There are hundreds of us who don't care whether you make a lasting difference for something great. You just want people to like you. If people would just like you, you'd be satisfied. Or if you could just have a good job with a good wife and a couple of good kids and a nice car and a few long weekends and some good friends and a fun retirement and a quick and easy death and a no hell afterwards. If you could just have that, you'd be satisfied even without making a difference for God. And that, my friends, is tragedy. He went on to say, Three weeks ago, we got word at our church that Ruby Ellison and Laura Edwards have both been killed in Cameroon. Ruby was over 80, single all of her life. She poured it out for one great thing, to make Jesus Christ known among the unreached, the poor, and the sick. Laura was a widow, a medical doctor, pushing 80 years old and serving at Ruby's side in Cameroon. The brakes gave way, over the cliff they went, and they were gone, killed instantly. And I asked my people, was that a tragedy? Two lives driven by one great vision spent in unheralded service to the perishing poor for the glory of Jesus Christ. Two decades after almost all their American counterparts had retired to throw their lives away on trifles in Florida or New Mexico. No, that is not tragedy. That is glory. He said, I'll tell you what tragedy is. I'll read you from Reader's Digest what tragedy is. I know most of you don't read that. He said, this is tragedy. Bob and Penny took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago when he was 59 and she was 51. They now live in Punta Gorda, Florida, where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler playing softball and collecting shells. That, my friends, is tragedy. And people are spending billions of dollars to persuade you to embrace the tragic dream. And I get 40 minutes today to plead with you, don't buy it. With all my heart, I plead with you, don't buy that dream. The American dream, a nice house, a nice car, 
a nice job, a nice family, a nice retirement, collecting shells as the last chapter before you stand before the creator of the universe to give an account of what you did. Here it is, Lord, my shell collection. Here it is, Lord, my nice swing. Lord, look at my boats. Not Ruby, not Laura. Don't waste your life. Don't waste it. That man's name was John Piper. I was not a part of that crowd that day, although I'd been a part of every passion until that time. But I watched it multiple times later and read it at least once a year. And every time I see this great passage of what Paul is saying to the Philippians in chapter three of the book of Philippians, I am reminded that it is the same call that Paul put on the lives of the people in that church. Don't waste your life. And so the question I want to ask over the next couple of weeks is, how do we do that? How do we not waste the life that God has given us? And so let's look first at chapter 3, starting in verse 1. And we're going to read the first 11 verses. And we will talk in that time about particular verses today over those 11 verses. And then next week we'll come back and pick up some things that we don't get to today. Chapter 3, verse 1 says, In addition, my brothers and sisters, by the way, in the original, the word there literally is finally, but this is a typical preacher finally, because there are two more chapters to go. He says finally, and then writes another half of the book, right? Finally, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. To write to you again about this is no trouble for me and a safeguard for you. Verse 2. Watch out for the dogs, watch out for the evil workers, watch out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision, the ones who worship by the Spirit of God, boast in Christ Jesus, and do not put confidence in the flesh. Although I have reasons for confidence in the flesh, if anybody else thinks he has grounds for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, A Hebrew born of Hebrews, regarding the law, a Pharisee, regarding zeal, persecuting the church, regarding the righteousness that is of the law, blameless. But everything that was gained to me, I've considered to be a loss because of Christ. More than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Because of him, I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them as dung so that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God based on faith. My goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead. Today I want to talk about one point and one point only from this passage of scripture. And it is simply this. People that don't waste their lives do particular things. Today it is simply this, that they treasure Christ above all this world has to offer. Above absolutely everything else in this world, they treasure Christ. 
Now, he starts this passage in chapter 3, verse 1, talking about a group of people. He calls them the mutilators of the flesh. He calls them dogs. It's some of the strongest language Paul uses about people. And we don't have time over the next two weeks, probably even, to go deep dive into what's happening here. But I can give you the basic understanding of what's happening. This is a problem Paul would have in almost every church that he started or planted, that Paul would then go to another place to plant, or in this case, went to another place to plant and was arrested and is now in jail. And there would be people within the church, or there would be people that would literally follow behind Paul. And so Paul would be there at a church for a while, and as soon as they got word, hey, Paul left the church, this group of people would come in. And they were Jewish people who were teaching those that had become Christians that if you're not Jewish first, you're not a true Christian. And so in order to become a Christian, you must become a Jew first and follow all the Jewish rules and rituals first. And then secondly, you can become a Christian after that. And Paul fought vehemently against that. He said, absolutely not. That is not the case. You don't have to become a Jew to become a Christian. You just must accept Christ. That we are saved by faith. Through grace, not of works, lest any man should boast. And so he fought against that again and again and again. But it's the kind of thing that when Paul was away, these guys knew how to manipulate them into thinking, well, maybe that's what Paul was teaching. Well, maybe that is what Paul would say, or maybe that's what's happening. And Paul says, absolutely not. He uses some of the strongest language he can about them because he says that you cannot listen to them. They just want to steal away your joy, steal away who you are, stop you from growing in your faith. They are wrong. It is fake news. It is not true. Follow along and listen to the words of the Lord. It says they're dogs, evil workers, and mutilators of the flesh. Now, the reason he called them mutilators of the flesh is because there was a very significant thing that had to happen for adult males to become fully Jewish. That involved the tearing away of flesh. And so that is the word that he uses there to say, that's not of God. But then he's going to compare himself. And this is where it moves into our understanding today and why he had to have that background. Because they were claiming that they were the true Jews. They were the true Christians. They were the true believers. Because of their background and their knowledge. And because they were Jewish and had followed this path. Because they had done what God had called them to do according to them. And so they were the true church. And Paul, in verse 4, starts doing a little spiritual trash talking. Now, in our modern translations of that, we don't get the force with which Paul was saying this, but he emphasizes the words anyone else in there, basically almost like if anyone, absolutely anyone, if there is somebody out there that thinks they can match credentials with me, tell them to step up to the plate. In modern day, it would almost be like a one-sided rap battle. Where he is just saying, there is nobody that can defeat me in my credentials for who I am. And he lists seven things that are true about him that give him a leg up. Well, a few of them because of he was his birth and his position in life, and a few of them because of what he achieved. I mean, he talks about it. He says, if anyone thinks they've got it, listen, I was circumcised on the eighth day. That is when it was required of Jewish law, of the nation of Israel. I was actually born. I have lineage to the nation of Israel, but not just the nation of Israel, particularly to the people of Benjamin. Which we'll talk about that in just a moment. A Hebrew of Hebrews, like the most Hebrew Jewish person you could find. 
And regarding the law, I was a Pharisee. I, I followed it completely. I did what I was supposed to. I persecuted the church. I did everything that I was required to do by the law of God and was considered blameless on their account. He said, and yet, I consider all of that today loss. Nothing of no value. In fact, there's some ways that you can read that word lost there to mean a hindrance. That his background as a Jewish Hebrew Benjamite who was a Pharisee and a persecutor of the church and blameless according to the law were stumbling blocks to him hearing and receiving the message of Jesus Christ. And he talks about these treasures of a wasted life. Now just to be honest with you, those kind of things don't really speak to us. Because most of us in this room, like, none of that is true. Right? I mean, now now perhaps we have someone that has Jewish lineage or heritage, but the majority of us don't. And so the whole tribe of Israel, nation of Israel, born of the Hebrews, regarding the law of Pharisee, persecuting the church and blameless, like none of that applies to us. And so we think, well, I don't even know that what that matters. But the truth is that when you take it into modern understanding and modern terms, it resounds with things that people hold on to today that can be seen as treasures, but they're really part of the wasted life if it's not lived in the direction towards the Lord. For instance... He basically lays out the first part of this as his family heritage. He says, this is who I is. This is my family. This is where I came from. And my family were always followers of God. My family always did what God called them to do. My family has lived generation after generation for the Lord. And because of my family, I could claim status with that. And I could hold on to the heritage that is there. Second thing he talks about is his social status. You see, he was not just part of Israel, he was a part of Benjamin. Benjamin was considered one of the privileged tribes because they had stuck firm to David when everybody else had rebelled or when things had gone wrong. They had always been with David. They were given some of the most prized land. It was the land around Jerusalem where the temple of God would be built. And so when they got into the promised land, they divided up among the tribes. Benjamin's tribe got the prime real estate. And so it wasn't just that Paul was a Jewish person from the nation of Israel. He was from the most elite, if you will, or the Highest thought of tribe. His social status was great. He had unbelievable biblical knowledge. Now we have to get over the hump here of the idea that the Pharisees were all bad. Because in the New Testament, we see the Pharisees as the villains. But what we have to understand is, in their culture, in their mind, in their day, they would have thought that the, there was nobody out there that knew the Bible better, knew the Word of God better, knew the law of the Lord better than the Pharisees. And Paul was, as far as we can tell, one of the top Pharisees in that regard. He knew the law. He says, religious activity, I did everything I was called to do. I was at church all the time. I was there. I said prayers when they asked me to. I spoke at times. I was a part of groups. I was part of leadership in groups. I did everything religiously I was supposed to do. And I lived a moral lifestyle. I lived a good lifestyle. According to the rules of Christianity, if you will, I did everything that was right and good. 
And he says that stuff, my family heritage, my social establishment, my biblical knowledge, my religious activity, my moral lifestyle. He says, I count every bit of that as nothing. As loss. Let me just ask you a quick question. If you were building a resume of your life until this point, what would you put on there about your accomplishments and who you are? And I'm not talking about to try to get a job. I'm just talking about, hey, I want to put the things that I'm proud of and the things that I've been blessed with and the good things in my life. What would you put? And most of us would put something about our family background, something about our social status, something about our religious experience, something about a moral lifestyle. And Paul says, if I wanted to think about that resume, I would consider it complete loss in my life. And he says, the only thing that matters in all of life, the only thing that matters is to know Christ. Verse 7 says this, but everything that was a gain to me I have considered to be a loss because of Christ Jesus. Now he goes into something that's even stronger than that. A little bit farther down he says, I consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ. He said, in fact, I consider them as dung so that I may gain Christ. Now you all know what dung is, right? It's the nicest way you can say what it is. Right? In our world... It's like the nicest way you can say what it is. I just want you to know this. Paul did not use the nicest word he could use to describe it in his language. Now, there's sometimes people get it say, well, does that mean Paul cussed? No. All right. But he used strong language. Okay. He didn't call it poopy. All right. He, did, he called it and he didn't want to use the word dung. And I don't know if there's a word in our that's that's that's. And please don't shout them out for me. I don't know if there's a word comparable in our society for it. But he says, not only do I consider it loss, he says I consider it. Now, now some old translations of this will use the word rubbish. Well, rubbish is trash, and that's a kind of understanding. But here he's literally talking about the fact that everything in his life that is not directed towards Christ, he considers to be poop. Reminds me of the Old Testament verse in Isaiah that says that when we look at the righteous works of our lives, because again, Paul's talking about his social status, his moral lifestyle, his religious zeal. When we look at all of that, Isaiah says that when we look at our righteous acts, they are like filthy rags before the Lord. Nothing in your life matters if it is not directed towards and coming from a heart dedicated to Jesus Christ. Nothing. Nothing that you build, nothing that you accomplish, nothing that you become, nothing that you are, ultimately matters Outside of the context of how it relates to knowing Christ, exalting his name, and spreading his kingdom. Paul is basically using some hyperbole here to say that because of the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, everything else in my life pales in comparison to understanding that. 
Now, here's what I know beyond a shadow of a doubt is that there will come a moment in all of our lives when we will recognize that fact. My prayer is that we would recognize that fact before it's too late. Because for some people, they're going to recognize that fact when they're standing face to face with their creator. And John Piper, at the beginning of that message, kind of gives this this kind of silly idea of us standing before the Lord and saying, Lord, look at my boat. Look at my shell collection. But you and I all know areas of our own lives and people that think of themselves as Christians and church people and good church people who when they look at the totality of their lives and they stand before God Almighty, the things they're most proud of in life are not going to stand up in that moment. We need to dedicate our lives to the glory of His name and the spread of His kingdom. Matthew chapter 13 gives a couple of pictures of what that looks like. Jesus is telling parables and he says, first of all, it's like a man who's out in a field digging around. I don't know why. They didn't have metal detectors back then. But I imagine a guy searching a field with a metal detector and he hits upon something and he unearths it a little bit. And he realizes how awesome it is, how valuable it is. And to make sure nobody else gets it, he covers it back up and goes and buys the entire property, spending everything he's got to get that treasure. The other one he tells is someone that finds pearls. And it is so valuable to him that he sells everything he has to go and buy the pearl. Paul's point is, Jesus' point is, that when you come in contact with who Christ is, when you understand the magnitude of his life and what he can do and what he is calling us to do, That the only response from us is to treasure him above all this world has to offer. And that is not a message you're going to hear on television or on social media or on the internet on a regular basis. Because this world is going to try to lock us in to an understanding of what this world considers to be successful. And subconsciously or consciously, many of us in this room, many of us listening online, have bought in completely to that's what success is. As a parent, to raise good kids who don't do bad things and get good degrees and end up with good jobs. As individuals that we make it into our career and we do a good job on our career and we gain more status and more status and more status and more money and more money until we get to the point that we don't have to work anymore and then we spend our days relaxing and enjoying what we've done. And yet God has called us to a mission and a task that is much more than that. He has called us to something so infinitely wonderful That we must live our lives in total abandon to that cause. Just a few verses before this. I I could bring, um, I could bring up some great examples from the Bible, but I think some of the problem is when I start talking about Paul or I start talking about Moses or you start talking about Abraham, you talk about those guys, you're like, yeah, but that's Moses. That's Abraham. That's Paul. I want to say about a little lesser known guy in the Bible named Epaphroditus. Not a lot of Epaphroditi. Would that be the plural? Of Epaphroditus running around. 
with names of that. But look at what it says in verse 25 of chapter 2. If you've got your Bible open and your app going, go back to chapter 2. And here's what's happening in this, this little part that we didn't cover, we're not going to cover in detail. Paul is explaining to them why Timothy didn't come and why Epaphroditus did. They wanted Paul, they didn't get Paul. Well, they thought, well, at least if we don't get Paul, we'll get Timothy. And Paul's saying, I didn't send Timothy. And they would have known that because Epaphroditus is the one that handed them the letter. And so they're probably looking at him like, who are you and why are you here? Verse 25 says, but I consider it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother, my co-worker and fellow soldier, as well as your messenger and minister to my need. He says, listen, this is who I've sent. And he right off the bat says, he's my brother. He's right here with me. He's my co-worker and fellow soldier, and fellow soldier in this cause. Verse 26. He has been longing for all of you and was distressed because you heard that he was sick. So they knew about him. He was just their, their third choice. And verse 27. Indeed, he was so sick that he nearly died. How? Why did he nearly die? He said, God had mercy on not only on him, but on me, so I would have sorrow upon sorrow. The idea is, when you look at the original language, he was sick, he nearly died, because he was doing for Paul what they could not do. Verse 30 tells us that. He came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to make up what was lacking in your ministry to me. He says, listen, he was so devoted to the cause of Christ and to my being a part of it and helping, that he literally almost died for me. He was willing to die for the cause of Christ. I want to close today telling you about a missionary that I read about this week. Um, I think we've talked about him a little bit before at one time. He's not a missionary that a lot of people know, and I don't know as much about him as I would like to, and I'm planning to read more. His name was C.T. Studd. That's a pretty good name for a missionary, right? I'll tell you right there, that's C.T. Studd. He is one that has a famous saying that I didn't know was his until I was reading some stuff about him this week that I love. He says, some wish to live within the sound of church or a chapel bell. I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. He said, some are content to be comfortable where they are. I want to go to the edge of the battlefield and fight there. Let me tell you a little bit about C.T. Studd. He was a wealthy English athlete. He had lots of money. He came to faith in Christ. He realized the joy of Christ. He literally sold everything he had, gave it all away. And after that, almost like he was being tempted by the adversary, his father died and left him an inheritance that was amazing. And he gave all of that away too. He had no money to his name. And he left for China where he began to share the gospel with unreached peoples there. Ten years, a wife, four children later, he came back to England. He prepared for his next mission. He left and he went to India. He lived there penetrating unreached groups with the gospel. He came back and then he was older. He did not store up treasures for retirement. Did not count his 401k and say, okay, I've made it. I've done my work. He left for Africa. He said, it's the most unevangelized place in the world today. I want to go and proclaim Christ. He risked his life and he went to inland Africa. And during the last 13 years of his life, he saw his wife one night. She was home raising funds to support the ministry he was doing there. And they would send letters back and forth talking about their love for one another, but how important it was for the gospel that they were doing right then. The church of his day thought he was crazy. 
They thought he kind of lost him. They said, don't go to China. They told him, no, go to India. They said, don't go to Africa. They said, you can't make any difference there. Wait until another time. Wait until people can go with you. Of course, nobody else wanted to go with him. And he wrote that kind of as a rallying cry. He said, believing that further delay would be sinful, some of God's insignificance and nobodies. That's what he called himself. That he was God's insignificant and God's nobodies. He said, I have decided on simple lines, according to the book of God, to make a definitive attempt to render the evangelization of the world an accomplished fact. He said, too long we have been waiting for other people to begin, and the time for waiting is past. The hour of God has struck. In God's holy name, we are going to arise and build. We will not build on sand, but on the bedrock sayings of Christ, and the gates and the minions of hell shall not prevail against us. Should men such as us fear before the whole world, before the sleepy, lukewarm, thankless, namby-pamby, that's what he actually said, Christian world, we will trust our God. We will venture for him. We will live. We will die for him. And we will do it with his joy, unspeakable, singingly loudly in our hearts. We would a thousand times sooner die trusting in our God than live trusting in man. Then when we come to our position, we realize that the battle is already won and the end of the glorious campaign is in sight because we will have the real holiness of God. Not the sticky stuff or the talk or the dainty words or the pretty thoughts. We will have holiness, daring faith and the works of Jesus Christ on our behalf. He said some are comfortable standing within the hearing of the church bells, but I want to run a mission Straight to the gates of hell. I don't want to come to the end of my life. And I could. I could preach every week in a church like this. I could raise a good family. I could do lots of religious things. And in the middle of it all, still waste my life. Because the goal of my life is not to preach a bunch of messages. The goal of my life is not to raise a good family. The goal of my life is to not be impressive in how I live my religious understanding. The goal of my life is to glorify the name of Jesus Christ and to spread his kingdom. And if I'm not doing that, then I'm wasting my life. And if you're not doing that, you're wasting your life. And if this church is not doing that, we are wasting our lives. I want to be a church that does what God has called us to do, that considers all the things of this world as rubbish, as dung, as poop, because we know that there is something better, and that is following Christ to the ends of the earth, proclaiming His goodness and His greatness. And my prayer is that God will give us a vision of what that looks like, and we will run to what He calls us to do. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray that in these moments, you'll give us wisdom and discernment about what it is that you've called us to do. You'll give us the ability to just simply respond as you've called us to respond. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.